Well, how are we doing? Ozark? Good? All right. Uh, man, that the worship is awesome. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of worship in general, but when I was a student here, you just didn't know what you were going to get. It's like a box of chocolates and you showed up for worship. Here, I mean, great things are happening. And I love being back. I love uh, Matt Proctor. You guys love Matt Proctor? Good dude. Yeah. I do. I do. He's a great uh, communicator, great teacher of communicators. And how often do you get somebody so creative and a president who can compliment another faculty member's left brain and it comes off charming? <laughs> I mean, I'm just sitting there. I've never heard that before. I'm like, wow, that's fantastic. And Dr. Lawson probably really appreciated it. And I mean, just eye to eye there. Um, I... I'm going to start off by telling you, and hope that hopefully this is okay, I'm a pretty kind of shallow person some of the times. Um, so I'm going to judge all of you by one question, and hopefully you're okay with that. It's all judgy-judging here today. Um, I, and, and I want you to participate. We're going to take a vote here in just a second. I want you to participate. Um, and, and there are some of you who are not going to want to because you try to be healthy. Okay, You're like, I don't drink that kind of stuff. I want you to pretend like you're destroying your body like the rest of us. Okay? Okay? Look, the sun's doing it to you. You can't stay alive that long. Anyway, there are two types of people in this world. There are Coca-Cola people and there are Pepsi people. That's it. Okay? So I'm going to judge you based on which side you fall on. And there is a correct answer. This is not subjective. Okay, so if you are a Coca-Cola person, make some noise right now. Coca-Cola. Okay. If you are a Pepsi person, make some noise. Okay, well, the correct answer is Coca-Cola. As I said, this is not a subjective test, and, and I, I'm kind of a nerd. I like studying different things, and the relationship between Coca-Cola and Pepsi is actually pretty fascinating. Uh, back in the early 20th century, you know, all the way up to World War II, Coca-Cola was the cola drink. As a matter of fact, then General Dwight Eisenhower would send bottles of Coca-Cola overseas to, peop- to our uh, soldiers who were fighting so that they would get a taste of Americana. And, and at that time, Pepsi was kind of of a fledgling cola company, and they said, you know, Coca-Cola, they've got the old people. We want to get the new generation. So they came up with a campaign called the Pepsi Generation, and they tried to get some of the younger people to buy into Pepsi, and Coca-Cola didn't like that. So at the time, they created like this uh, commercial where everybody's singing, and I'm not going to do that today because I want you to stay in chapel. But but everybody just kind of fell in love with this commercial and, and the odds kind of went back, but Pepsi's still growing. And so Pepsi started another campaign to try to get people on board with them. Some of you remember this in the late 70s and 80s. They created the Pepsi Taste Challenge. And they did a, a, a bunch of different commercials where they'd set up a card table just on a regular street and they would have unmarked cups of Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And it was a miracle. In every single commercial, people chose Pepsi. I don't know how that happened. It was like a miracle of God parting the Red Sea. And so Coca-Cola at that time really started to lose stock and money and people really started switching over. And Coca-Cola did something 
that they shouldn't have done. They got scared and they got fearful and they allowed their fear to direct their actions. They made one of the biggest business blunders of all time. If you go get your MBA, if you study organizational leadership or organizational psychology, sometimes they will use this as a case study. They threw out the old formula. Some of you remember this and they started new Coke. And it was amazing how new Coke tasted suspiciously like old Pepsi. It's a miracle of God. I don't know how that happened. But people were upset. People were so emotionally attached to Coca-Cola. They're like, this, this, I grew up with this, you know, Norman Rockwell. I mean, you're not supposed to change anything. And people raged back then. They raged differently in the 80s. They wrote facsimiles and sent telegraphs and made rotary phone calls and wrote letters. That's how we raged back then. And so Coca-Cola switched back, and they that's why for so many years it was called Coca-Cola Classic, and now it's just Coca-Cola. But you see, I, I think about that, and that's just such a big, big mistake when we let fear drive our decisions, and when we react to things rather than respond to things. And I think to myself, you know what? It's kind of what Yoda said. Yoda's a mentor of mine. You know, I mean, I think he's a Christian. <laughs> Laugh all you want. <laughs> one time Yoda said this in one of the Star Wars movies. He said, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. And I think that when we operate and when we live from a vantage point of fear, it gives us permission to mistreat other people, even if we're unintentionally doing so. We can do it by being indifferent We can do it by being aggressive towards people. We can do it by being people-pleasing. We can do it by so many different ways. But I guarantee you, when fear drives your decisions, you will end up mistreating people, even people that you love the very most. I kind of grew up with that. And some of you know this, some of you don't. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but when I was two, my parents divorced And both of them went into same-sex relationships. They were both professors. My mom got together with a psychologist. They were together for 22 years until uh, uh, Vera died. Uh, My mother's partner died of cancer. And that's just how I was raised. I mean, my mother and her partner were activists. They were on the board of directors for GLAAD in Kansas City. I mean, I went with them to uh, pride parades and uh, gay bars and clubs and campouts. And that was my normal. It was my reality. And, and I grew up hating Christians. And I, and I got invited to this high school Bible study, and I had never stepped foot in a Christian household before. And I remember walking into this Christian household at the age of 16 thinking, this is weird. I mean, I mean these people had framed pictures of sheep and lion on the wall. It's like, I've never seen people with a framed, animal of a framed picture of an animal they didn't own. It's like weird. It's a potpourri smell, kind of like the Bible bookstore. And just... <laughs> weird pictures of Jesus and I'm just like we went downstairs and we were studying the Bible and you know we were all reading out of first Corinthians and I was in first Chronicles and um, (laughs) read a verse about somebody getting impaled and they said well that's in the Old Testament I said so does that mean there's a new one I guess there's updated 2.0 I had no idea I thought the Bible is just a bunch of irrelevant dusty books written by a bunch of dead people but the more that I read the Gospels, the more that I realized that Jesus was not like the Christians that had treated my mom poorly, that had said things about my mom and her community, that Jesus was somebody who had very deep theological convictions, 
but he also had very personal and intimate relationships with people who were far from the religious elite of the day, who were at the fringe, the people that nobody else would have relationships with. And I was like, I can get on board with that. And I became a Christian. And then my parents, I I told them, I came out to them as a Christian. And they kicked me out of the house because the same fear that they preached against and stood against, you know, that, that they wanted tolerance. They were intolerant of me and they allowed their fear to drive their decision with me and how to treat me. And so then I was out here, but I learned that Jesus Christ can mend anything. And I ended up coming to Ozark Christian College and I ended up going to uh, California and I was in Texas for a while. Because uh, everybody's got to go to purgatory for a little bit. And then I went back to California. I'm sorry. It's awful. There's humidity and rattlesnakes and the Dallas Mavericks and Mark Cuban. Come on. Now, I'm a Lakers fan, so I was one safe person. And so here, here's the deal. You know, so I went to California and, and my parents, they ended up accepting Jesus in Texas. They moved down there. They ended up accepting Jesus because they learned real quick that, that not all Christians are jerks and that some people will actually treat them like human beings and not like projects. And when you treat somebody like a human being, it's incredible how much They can see God through that. We underestimate how much people base their view of God off of how we treat them. And so today, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about how do we treat people who are different from us. And specifically today, uh, talking about the LGBTQ community or people who identify that way. And not everybody who identifies as LGBTQ identifies in the same exact way. But we've got to learn, those of us who may have issues with, with people in that community and we don't understand them because we fear what we don't understand and, and what we can't control, we need to learn how to love people who are not like us. And some of you may identify as LGBTQ or you may really be an ally of people who identify as LGBTQ in some way. But here's what I want you to know. Your problem may not be with them. Your problem may be with people here. Maybe with your professors. It may be with the people you go to church with. Maybe with the people in your dorms. Maybe with the people from your home church. But guess what? You're still called to love them. When you follow Jesus, you gave up your right to mistreat people, to be bitter, to be harmful, to treat people differently. You gave up your right to be able to do that. And so my question is this, no matter which side of the spectrum you fall on, how do we treat people who are different from us? So I want us to go to what I think is the most challenging Bible passage ever. It's not in Romans 9 through 11. You know, you want to study that, go to Westminster Seminary. We're not going to do that today. What we're going to do is we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 38. I'm convinced that this is the most challenging Bible study there is. This is the most challenging. There is no more challenging passage than this. And Jesus is getting ready to uh, finish chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. I really think that what he says here in these next few verses is kind of a summary of everything that he said so far. And, And keep in mind, he's talking to a first century Jewish crowd, a lot of people, some of them Pharisees, a lot of them regular common people. And here's what he says right here. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. 
Now, let me just tell you something real quick, okay? I'm good with that. How many of you are good with that? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, okay? You punk me, I'm going to punk you right back. I'm good at getting revenge. Anybody else in here, if somebody pranks you, you're going to get them back. I mean, listen, you human beings are natural blamers, right? If you don't believe me, wait till you get married, okay? (laughs) And if you still don't believe me, wait till you have kids. We're natural at it. We've been doing it since, Gen- since Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus says, you've heard there was it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah, glad that's in there, right? And then here he says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And this is when the people who were on Jesus' side would have been like, time out, dude. What do you mean, do not resist an evil person? Do not, because their minds would have automatically gone to the occupying Roman force led by a dictator who thought that he was God, who was imposing illegal taxes and taken and was in their country illegally in their view. Do not resist an evil person. This is not the Messiah that we need. He's actually having down moment. Let's get him some Adderall. I mean, people would have said, are you kidding? And then Jesus would have gone further. He says this. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. It's, oh, sounds weird. Now I'm going to fight back. And no, 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 Jesus goes further. He says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And basically what Jesus is saying here is how far are you willing to go for the sake of peace? Because in a two-garment society, if somebody sues you for your tunic and you give them your coat, hello. People would have actually probably laughed at that. But we live in like a 15-garment society today. And then he says, if somebody forces you to go one mile, go with them too. I mean, a Roman soldier back in the day could force any citizen to carry their heavy pack for like a mile. And it was heavy and it was hot out there and they had to carry it for a mile. And yet Jesus says, you know, those people that have invaded our country, the people that don't agree with you, the people that are of a different religion, different political party, the people that have been responsible for crucifying and killing your brethren, you know them. I want you to go the extra mile. I heard Reggie Joyner, who's the head of Rethink Orange, speak on this one time. And he just said something I thought was brilliant. He said, mile one was about obligation. Mile two was about the relationship. And I think Reggie's right. Jesus says, the person that you cannot stand, the person you want to get revenge against, the person that is everything that you can't stand, love them serve them don't get revenge how far are you willing to go to be known as a follower of jesus and he finishes up this section saying give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you it's like ah you know if god i'm I'm just gonna have an admission here and and you know what you may not invite me back to speak after this, but I'm saying if God gave me an infallible and errant eraser and said you can erase any passage, it would be this. Because this is hard. This is really hard when we take things personally and when we feel shame and when we feel like people don't like us. 
And like, it would have been good if Jesus would have stopped there. But if you know anything about Jesus, he pushes the limits. It's like he doesn't stop. And then you go to verse 43 and he says, You have heard that was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, before when he says, don't get revenge, go the extra mile. I could have done that, you know, and I could have just like fulfilled it and could have been indifferent towards the person. But no, now he says the people that you hate. Again, they'd be thinking about the first century uh, Roman soldiers. Those people, Herod's people, the illegal, the, the king that shouldn't even be there, the king of the Jews, those people that you can't stand. Here's what I want you to do. Don't hate them. Love them. And pray for those who persecute you. And literally in the original language, persecute can also mean those who hurt you. You know, I, I had somebody once tell me this. That if you're upset at somebody, and somebody has really hurt you, I understand that there are some people we need to put distance between us and them because they're abusive and toxic, and and I get that. But this individual said, try this, pray for that person every day for 30 days, and I guarantee you, you will not think of them that bitterly anymore. You will start loving them. And I look at this, I'm like, man, that's challenging. You know, if I would have been in the crowd at that time and Jesus is speaking, and if I'm his PR guy, I would have been like, end right there. (laughs) Just think about this for a second. I mean, if people left when Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, it doesn't say this in the Bible, and I'm not saying that they did, but I just wonder how many people would have left Jesus aside after this sermon. And at that time, I can't say that I might not be one of them. And you can't say that either because, man, this is difficult. As difficult as it is today, it was more difficult under an occupying force. And he says, you do all this, verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, that we are not shown to be children of God by how much we know, but by the compassion we show. We are shown to be, our faith is lived out in how we treat other people and how we love other people and we love them recklessly. How far are you willing to go for the sake of loving somebody? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to give up? Are you willing to love the people that hate you, the people that that make your skin crawl? Are you willing to love those people, even the people that tweet at 3 a.m.? Listen to this. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We call this, in in fancy theological circles, the the doctrine of common grace. That God gives grace, the same grace to everybody. All gives us the same sunshine, the same water to drink, the same air to breathe. We all live in an earth and so on and so forth. It really bothers me sometimes because here's what God does. And it's just like, why does he do this? I don't get this, okay? Here's what he does. He allows good things to happen to bad people. He allows bad things to happen to good people. If I was God, it would be reversed. But God says, hey, I I allow good things and bad things to happen to everybody. Like it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that he is patient, not wanting any to perish. That's how loving God is. God's willing to bless evil people for the sake of them coming to know Him. 
In, in Luke chapter 6, Luke records Jesus' words are very similar here, but there's a verse that I think is challenging when uh, Jesus actually says in Luke 6.35, you need to love people and be kind because God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And it's like, I wish it would have said unkind. So I can do that well, because then I get to determine who's ungrateful and wicked instead of maybe me owning the fact that that verse is talking about me more than anybody. And Jesus keeps on messing with us and getting all up in our business in verse 46. Look what he says here. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. In other words, if you're nice to the people that like you, you're just like everybody else. You're not different. And I don't know about you, but but if I walked out of the lobby and if you gave me $500, I guarantee you I'll be your friend. I can be bought. Just saying. If you hack into my bank account, won't find much. But if you were to take $500, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to like you. Right? And here's the thing. Jesus says it takes absolutely no effort, zero effort, to like people who like you back. It takes all the faith in the world to love people who can't stand you and people that you can't stand. He finishes up here, and everybody's like, you know, kind of take a breather. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The whole purpose is for us to be conformed into the image of our Father. The whole point is for us to be more like God. And we cannot be like God if we are mistreating other people. When they disagree with us, when they're not like us. If I had to sum this whole passage up, I would say this. That love has no exception clause. Love has absolutely no exception clause. When you follow Jesus, as I said before, you don't get the right to be unforgiving. Forgiveness is commanded. Reconciliation is different. Trusting somebody else is different. You do not get the choice as to whether or not you forgive. Why? Because love has no exception clause. Love is not indifferent. Love has no filter. You don't get to decide who you get to be a neighbor to. That's one of the things that bothers me about the parable of of the Good Samaritan. The question that the guy asked, he was asking the wrong question. He was asking, hey, you know, who should I be a neighbor to? That was a big question they were asking. And Jesus says, no, it's not who should I be a neighbor to. You know, it's who do you get to be a neighbor to? Love has absolutely no exception clause. If you are using a filter with how you treat people and who you decide to love and how you decide to love people, whether they're LGBTQ or whether in your mind they're a bunch of fundamentalist, crazy, Pharisee Christians, here's the deal. You might know a lot. You might even be saved. But that doesn't mean you're mature. Because you can't be mature and mistreat other people even if you think they're wrong. Because ultimately, you're not like God in that moment, and you are becoming like the people that you fear the most. So how do we live this out? What does it look like? I mean, love has no exception clause. First thing I'd say is this. Prioritize God's words over society's trends. 
prioritize God's words over society's trends. Listen to me on this right here, okay? This was a societal trend. It was the interpretation of the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law back then to say that, that you get to determine who is your neighbor, that you get to be the one who decides who you like and who you don't like. And yet Jesus is different. He's like, no, that is not what God says in the Old Testament. Here's what he really says, okay? That you need to love everyone. And I see that happening today. It's happening within the Christian world too. It's like no, it's like our society teaches us, and now the Christian world is teaching this that you do not have a voice unless you're an extremist. That we're eliminating the tension of the middle, the tension of grace and truth. And I want to say this: that extremists have never led anyone to peace and unity. So if you think you're standing up for a cause by being extreme and categorizing other people, whether they're LGBTQ or whether you think they're fanatical Christians, you're not helping things. You're making them worse. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You got to live in that uncomfortable middle where you got to love the people that you don't like because loving God and loving our neighbor are inseparable. And you've got to prioritize God's word and what he says in here. Man, I have studied this Bible. I've studied, studied, studied. And if there's anybody that's ever wanted to disprove what the Bible had to say about sexual intimacy and its place in, in, in same-sex marriage or opposite-sex marriage, it's me. Here, here's what I've learned. I've learned that, no, I mean, you, you, it takes a lot of exegetical fancy footwork, but marriage, you know, it, between a man and a woman is where sexual intimacy lies. You see that all the way back in Genesis 2.24, which even if you don't believe that that is literal, even if you don't believe that that's fact, even if you believe it's a metaphor, it is still symbolic of the early Israelites' community of God's standard for sexual intimacy. And everything else flows from there. And by the way, name me one society where sex has been taken out of the boundaries that God has put here, where human trafficking has not gone up, where rape has not gone up, where molestation and abuse has not gone up, and sex is used as a bargaining chip and used to power over other people. Name me one society where that hasn't happened. Maybe God has his boundaries there for a reason. Maybe God can look down the corridor of time and he can see things that we can't. And I mean, God's not a cosmic killjoy. I mean, he created sex. I'm, I'm, I'm married. I'm a fan. <laughs> Wish my wife was more of a fan of it, but... Obviously, she's going through her face. <laughs> Prioritize God's words over society's latest trend. Here's the next thing. Realize that devaluing another person is heresy. You can be orthodox in what you believe but commit absolute heresy by how you carry out that belief. And Jesus says so right here. 
And there were a lot of people, you're orthodox in your theology, you commit heresy by what you believe. I remember when Messy Grace came out at our church, I gathered together a bunch of uh, millennial people who identified in some way as LGBTQ who attended our church. Some people were celibate out of their um, biblical conviction, but they were same-sex attracted. Others were in relationships, some were in between. And I said, I want you to come over to my house every Tuesday night from 8 to 10. And uh, from September through December, I'm not going to try to de-gay ya or anything. I want to hear your stories and I want to just talk about Jesus. And during that time, I found out some really interesting things. That almost all of them were same-sex attracted, according to their testimony, since they, were, since they can remember. That it was not a choice that they would ever make. And, and then I learned this. That all of them tried to change at some point. Half of them tried to kill themselves at some point. Usually around sophomore, junior year in high school. You need to pay attention to that. I learned that every single one of them had a bad church experience. And then finally, almost all of them felt like God hated them. Because of how other Christians treated them. One girl said, do you know how hard it is to go to church and sing songs to somebody you think hates you? My heart broke. And I said, well, you know that our church is not affirming of same-sex relationships. Why do you come to our church? And she said, because of how you make us feel. We feel like we have a place to belong. And then she said something interesting. She said, we don't have to agree with everything a church believes to attend there. We have to know that there's a place for us to belong. And I thought to myself, we have got to have harder and longer conversations about how this plays out in ministry and how this plays out in our own personal relationships. Because devaluing other people is complete heresy. Third thing is this, love is based on acceptance, not agreement. Love is based on absolute acceptance, not agreement. You don't have to agree with everything, as this lady, as this girl said, to, to accept someone. Acceptance, I think, is a biblical mandate, as we just read. And then Paul says in Romans 9, uh, Romans 12, 9 through 18, Romans 12, 18, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So Jesus and Paul say that love and peace with another person depends on me, not them. Because I can control me, I can't control anyone else. And what we're talking about here is empathy. You can be empathetic with somebody without actually affirming what they're doing or affirming a belief or something like that. I love Brene Brown's definition of empathy in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. It's very, very simple. Brene Brown says that empathy is to feel with another person. And I love Reggie Joyner's definition of it. I'm a Reggie fan. But Reggie says that uh, to be empathetic is to put your own thoughts and feelings on pause long enough to think and feel with another person. That's what empathy is. Empathy is, is just being present. That brings me to the fourth thing, okay? This is how you become empathetic. Walk with people. Should be up on the screen there. Walk with people. Have conversations. Be fully present. Ask questions. 
Don't judge. Use your time wisely. Listen. Build relationships. Engage. Acknowledge their frustration. Don't try to fix somebody. God's never called you to fix anyone. God has called you to be present and to point them to Jesus. That's what God has called you to do. Be empathetic. Because when we're not empathetic, I guarantee you we're going to be controlled by fear. And and if we're fearful, it makes us do horrible things to people. We can either push people who are same-sex attracted further back into the closet they're coming out of, or if you identify as LGBTQ or you're an ally and you are making somebody fearful of losing their relationship with you, if, if somebody doesn't agree with you, you can force them back into the closet that you came out of. I guarantee you there is ungodly, unloving behavior on both sides. And this has got to be a deeper conversation because we are dealing with people with real emotions, real pain, real hurt, real upbringing. It is not simple. People are never simple. Even though I talked about being shallow at the beginning of the sermon, people are never shallow. People are deep and we need to be deep. And here's the very last thing I'll say. Then I'll close with this. Decide how far you're willing to go for the sake of influence with another person. Jesus said in Matthew 5.38, he said, I want you to go to extremes to be able to have peace with another person, to be able to love the people that have invaded your land, that have taken over, that are killing your people, that are imposing illegal taxes, that are of a different religion. How far are you willing to go to gain influence with another person? Because that's what I want. That's what I want. I I have relationships with people. And the reason why I have them is because I love them. And I want to earn the right. I want to earn the influence to be able to be one of the people that they call when life falls apart for them. What are you willing to do? Does that mean that you don't have tough conversations? No. Sometimes you do. You do have to have difficult conversations on holy living. But those are best had in the context of trust, love, and a relationship. Love has no exception clause. You don't get to decide who you love and who you don't. Okay? You do get to decide today, no matter which side of the argument you're on, if you want to be more like Jesus. I hope you choose well. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for uh, this uh, chapel service. Thank you for all the different uh, faculty and staff members who are honored here today, who are moving on. Many of them I know, and um, I just pray your blessing on them as they go forth into uh, the next chapter, the next season of their life, Father, that you would continue to um, expand their influence so that they would be able to share with unbelievers and unchurched people the message of hope, the message of the gospel. I pray that, uh, that you would continue to strengthen President Proctor and the, and the faculty and the leadership here and the staff and the students that this would be a, a place that is grounded in truth but unwavering in grace and love. Lord, we can't love you and not love people and vice versa. And we cannot have truth without grace and we can't have grace without truth. 
And I pray that we would not be part of the extremists, that we would live in that uncomfortable tension where we are just trying to love people, even the people that we don't like. Help us to live out this principle that love has no exception clause. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.